Principal Matters Podcast, episode 252. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about bomb-proof constructive feedback with my special guest, Chris Zervis. Chris Zervis has helped organizations such as Army National Guard Bureau, U.S. Bank, and ConocoPhillips improve communication and productivity. He has earned a master's degree in communication from Wheaton College and has taught on two college faculties in speech and business communication. Chris and his family live in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and we connected through our collective work with our area churches, as well as the work that Chris does in leadership development. You can find him at his website that he'll share here later in this conversation. But Chris Service, welcome to Principal Matters podcast, where we share with education leaders inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas. I always like to ask my guests to fill in the blanks on that intro, anything else you want them to know about your background, and something else that may surprise listeners to know about you. Principal Matters. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about your work. And uh, I think you've said more than enough about me. So, Well, I didn't realize you were a Wheaton graduate until we were jumping on this call together. And so we can pick brains later about all the great minds that have come out of that university. But it's so great to have you in the room, Chris. And as a fellow Oklahoman, I know that you've done a lot of service with area organizations on leadership. And that's one of the reasons that we connected because you have some great resources on constructive feedback. And I have in my hands a copy of a helpful book that you put out recently on constructive feedback, sustaining healthy conversations at work. And this is a conversation that I consistently have with education leaders, which is how to engage in creating and cultivating strong culture and how to lead difficult conversations. And so as we jump into this conversation, there's some nitty gritties out of one impact, but let me give you an opportunity to just share some of the ideas that you bring into conversations with leaders as they think about those dynamics. Yeah, well, you made a key statement and used a key word, I think, that cultivate. And I think, you know, we chose to write this book with a fashion of really looking at it as an orchard type situation because there are healthy trees, there are unhealthy trees, and it's up to us as the gardener, if you will, to make sure that our trees are healthy. So if I prune a tree that is not healthy, it's gonna really struggle to survive. But if I have taken the time to fertilize and love and care for and nurture a a fruit bearing tree and I prune it, then it is just gonna bear more fruit. So, you know, the word that you used cultivate is really a critical piece of having a difficult conversation. I've got to have some history, some trust that's built, in order to be in a position to have a successful conversation. That's so important. And so let's stay there for just a moment, because in your book, you unpack several ways that, and you use the the orchard analogy of how can a gardener or how can someone that's looking at the, the soil and the cultivation of their culture keep some good ideas in mind. And there are a couple of these I want to touch on with you, Chris. The first is sincere care, the soil of sincere care. Talk about that for just a little bit. People, especially today, they can see right through us, you know, I mean, sincerely caring for your employees is really a choice. 
Um, and, and we're all guilty in, in this tension that exists between task and relationship. But I think we're seeing our culture shift to more, man, I need to be an authentic relationship with people. And we were with a group this week where one of the ladies was saying, you know, some of our supervisors supervise 80 people. And uh, what do we do about that? And I think, well, first of all, that's way too many. You need some lieutenants. People want to be in relationship. When they have a good relationship at work, especially with their boss, they're more likely to stay and more likely to be engaged. Excuse me. So sincere care really stems kind of from our own health, which uh, is a topic that you do a great job on with your book. Um, so I, I think you get that as much as anything else. That we kind of can only care for people, first of all, from the overflow of our own hearts and really cultivating health in our own selves. That's probably bad English for a school guy. How would you say that? Cultivate I don't know, whatever I said, I, I'm not convinced that's the right word, but I think that's the perfect way to say it. And one of the things that comes to my mind, Chris, when I think about cultures of sincere care is just, it just seems, it's, I know that you and I have spent a lot, a lot of time reading and looking at leadership content. And we've also spent a lot of time talking to people about leadership development, but there seems to be trends you know, cultural trends in the ways that people communicate with each other. And I'm just going to say on the front end, that in the last, it seems like in the last 12 to 18 months, maybe the last couple of years, there's been a shift in public conversation where people have become so much more combative, um, so much more confrontational. And I've just watched all of this thinking, that doesn't work. I mean, there's not one piece of evidence I've ever looked at from research that I've done, companies I've studied, organizations that I've visited, where I've seen that work. And so, I, I, so let's just stay there for just a moment and talk about why why connecting your care to the people that you that you're leading makes such a difference there's a there's a phrase that i throw around and i'm sure i stole it from some great mind but it's it's connection before content you know and uh we are so busy in our day that we grab a subordinate and simply order them around without taking the time to listen to, honor, care for, and value people. And, you know, our, the research is pretty clear based on what you said. And I think COVID contributed to that a lot, but people's stress level and their worry level, both in the middle of COVID, maybe a year ago, was 10 percentage points higher. It may be decreasing somewhat now. A gentle answer turns away wrath, as you know, Will. And so being a person who is making a choice to say, I'm going to leave my office and I am going to moment by moment choose to engage with the people that encounter me as I walk out and get bombarded by 15 people needing my attention, that uh, I'm going to choose to be gracious is a huge deal because when a boss can be gracious to an employee, that becomes the framework and groundwork for stability for them to be corrected in a difficult conversation. I think that's so important. And I, I just want to speak to something that I've seen in school leadership too, Chris, as I've talked to leaders, both folks that are coming into leadership from the classroom, for instance, or maybe people that are in leadership after been having spent years in the classroom. There's a dynamic of 
there's a dynamic of, of responsibility that comes with power that I sometimes think people underestimate. And I think sometimes leaders are surprised that their position of power actually requires a greater attention to care and a greater attention to honoring other people because that position of power provides you leverage. And so when you ask someone to do something, and let's say they're a peer, that's a completely different request than if you ask someone to do something and you're their superior. And so I, I think there's, I, I've talked to a lot of leaders when they shift from um, into some sort, uh, form of management, they're kind of surprised at the, at the emotional response they get from other people. Like suddenly people perceive them as aggressive, assertive, or mean. And maybe they didn't realize that they were being aggressive or assertive or mean, or maybe they just don't realize now the new responsibility that they have and paying attention to the care that they give when they're talking to others. So to your point, Will, I think you're spot on is that, you know, I, I was a very thin-skinned young man and a boss would look at me funny or say something to me and, and perhaps innocuously and not even really thinking, but man, I'd, I'd go home and I'd, I'd stew on it for hours uh, and I was probably not the norm. Yet, if you look at, psychological research of personalities, 40% of the people that you're leading in your school are more interested in having a great relationship than they are anything else. And I think that's a critical thought as a leader is that it's so important that we're relationally in tune with people because so many people want peace over anything else. Mm, that's so good, Chris. And, and those are such good reminders because I think sometimes, you know, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment about how to have crucial conversations or confront things because that's a part of the responsibility of leadership. But if we don't first visit that relational soil, as you like to talk about, then when you start weeding the garden, if you're going to be making some big mistakes. So um, before we jump over to correction, let's, let's stay here just a little bit longer because um, you also talk a little, a little bit um, in the book about, about showing honor to others and the importance of servant leadership. And so uh, make your choice there. But I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about those dynamics in leadership too. I had the privilege of working with an author and speaker named Gary Smalley. And Gary Smalley built his entire work on the concept of honor. And it's something that really stuck with me. And uh, he uses a first century thinker and says, honor one another above yourself. And um, it's a great platitude. It's difficult to do because I, like you, am the most selfish person, uh, you know, that, you know, and so choosing to honor people, it, it is a choice. I think leadership, great leadership is, is choice after choice after choice. And, and some of those are difficult, um, but choosing to honor and value people um, as you've kind of set the stage, really does set the stage for a more difficult conversation that uh, needs to take place at times. And, and that, that's just fact. I mean, it's not a bad thing that a difficult conversation needs to take place. It's just part of leadership and, and it can be a beautiful thing. One of the things I love about Gary Smalley and, I, and, and Chris, I respect his work too. And probably the book I'm most familiar with is his Five Love Languages. And he's applied that beyond, way beyond marriage. Um, but it applies to marriage, but also to so many other relationships and his concept of making sure that your deposits outweigh your withdrawals. And that's just a dynamic I try to keep in mind sometimes, which is what am I doing consistently to make deposits in the people whom I'm serving or leading 
so that when I have to ask a hard thing of them, the hard things I'm asking of them aren't outweighing the praise that I'm giving them too. And so any thoughts you want to add to that? Because I'm going to shift here in just a moment to talking about the, those hard conversations. No, I, I think that's beautiful. The, the deposit thought is a great one. And it it really is critical. Honor is a good piece of that. And and uh, one of the concepts that, that I think helps leaders day to day that the first half of this book talks about is that the concept of um, Ken Blanchard's one minute manager. And just that I put myself in a position moment by moment and day by day to correct or to praise every encounter. And and if my praises, there's some research that's been done, it was debunked, but there were some guys that, that I think were on target that said, if my praise is greater than 13 to one praise to correction in a workplace relationship, then they're going to blow it off and be like, that, this guy's just totally always blue sky and, and it's too much. And he doesn't really give us honest correction. As King Solomon said, people appreciate honest correction more than flattery. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if people were criticized less than three to one, like every second time I was going to correct you on something, then the relationship also wasn't free to flourish. But somewhere in those ditches is a good number. And so I think somewhere in there is a good number of deposits into people um, as opposed to withdrawals. And that should happen moment by moment. So I don't carry a bunch of junk around with me going home. And so the time when I do have to have the difficult conversation, you know, I'm up to here and I'm going to explode. Well, I wanted to set the foundation for difficult conversations first by what you set as foundations, which is making sure you've cultivated cultures of honor and trust and care, because you and I both know you have to have hard conversations. There's no, you can't work without correction. You can't work without um, problem solving. You can't work without conflict because uh, we're human. And so let's go there for a few minutes, Chris, because I know there are people listening to this conversation who, because they're in leadership, they're constantly stepping up against conflict. And so walk us through that conversation, or we might even consider a scenario of how important it is for correction and praise to be to, to be that healthy balance and tension as you're stepping into hard conversations. Uh, I think it really goes back to the the words you opened with, Will, which is is cultivate. And a Gary Smalley used to say this that that conflict is a doorway to intimacy. Um, and it, it's a doorway if it's handled well, it provides greater connection at work which provides greater productivity, which provides greater engagement, which provides employee engagement, employee satisfaction, et cetera, in a school type setting, which trickles down frankly to the students learning more and the students being more content. So leadership trickles all the way down to a child at home, as you know. So a principal glares at a teacher over lunch and it wasn't intended to be anything, but they go back to the classroom and they're thinking something terrible is going on and they take it out on the kids who go home and they're like, my teacher got mad at me today. So there's a lot of responsibility and that's not to make things sound, oh my gosh, you know, the sky is falling. But um, I think looking at the fact that cultivating the relationship is the beginning. Let's park on some nitty gritties for just a minute, because when you 
talk about the um, in the in the difficult, deeper conversations that are necessary for work. I know that when you're doing trainings, this is the the this is the place where I hear the most attention too from people, which is, you know, how do I handle that difficult person? Because there's always that person on my staff who maybe we don't match priorities or maybe our personalities clash. And so, Chris, give us some feedback on. I, and I know these these are general concepts that you and I are talking about here, but but things that you keep in mind as you're coaching leaders and those those really tough conversations that are um, that are important because if you don't have those really tough conversations, then bad things are happening that aren't being corrected. The first step to me is I've got to take a look inside of me. Um, I grew up as a as a young man who I shared was really thin skinned and also very fearful. So for people that I lead, one of the things I, I have to be careful about is that I don't get extremely frustrated with them when I see them act in fear, because for me, it's a hot button. It's one I don't want to do. And I certainly don't want those that I lead to carry that on. So I've got to kind of take a personal inventory and say, first of all, is this my issue? And is this my pet peeve that is out of balance? Um, today, for example, I, I use this just because it happened today. So my son broke a glass outside. I am a glass Nazi um, because my, my kids go barefooted all the time. And I have had family members live through shards of glass in their foot. And it, it's a mess. And so my son didn't clean it up real well. And... Uh, I got all over him and then I came back and apologized because I said, you know what? I recognize that I, I'm over the top in this. This is a little bit of my issue. So I think we all have issues that we over-prioritize and, and spend too much time doing, but we've got to look inside and say, does this frustrate me to the nth degree because of me? So that's the first starting place. Well, let's stay there. And then let's go to the next starting place because I agree, Chris. And I think that often, and this is the harder thing to do when I talk to leaders about the people with whom they're most frustrated, that's the first hardest question is, let me self-check first myself, my own attitude, what I'm modeling for my the folks that I'm leading and make sure that what I'm modeling for them is the kind of behavior I want them modeling. Because if I'm modeling for them a short temper, if I'm modeling for them complaining, if I'm modeling them for them um, constant worry or um, whatever the concerns are that, that, we, that we seem to vent, and then I see that same behavior coming from them, I need to first start with me. You know, what am I modeling for them that now they're reflecting back to me? Let's assume that we're self-aware of our own conditions as we're stepping into a conversation, but we're also in a situation where there's some non-negotiable behavior that's happening from someone on our team that we know is maybe it's poisonous to our environment, our culture, or our outcomes. Let's have that conversation, Chris, about ways to confront those those kinds of difficulties. Yeah. Well, by the way, you have like the greatest radio voice ever. Did you, do you, did you do radio for a while? No, but when I was a kid, I pretended I did radio. So this podcast gives me a chance to like relive those dreams. Yeah, yeah. You sound like you've you've done it at least 250 times. <laughs> so, but you're you've got a really smooth radio voice. So to your question, you know, I, I think the main thing that would be the next step, Will, is 
really just choosing to listen. You know, I, when somebody does something wrong, my first initiative is, man, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to go shoot them with both barrels. But uh, if I can take into mind um, Stephen Covey's thoughts of seek first to understand, I do a lot better and I, I end up with less egg on my face uh, by choosing first to really listen and asking some questions that are non-accusatory. And what I mean by that is I make myself the subject. I feel like, or it's my understanding that um, there was a confrontation that took place today between you and a fellow teacher, or, um, you know, I feel like you are being a little harsh on the kids in relationship to uh, their time on their way out to research or recess, excuse me. But, but asking and taking the blame first of yourself and hearing the whole story. And the opposite of that is using a different pronoun that you got in a confrontation today and you are really harsh with the kids going to recess. Well, I, I don't know the whole story yet, but if I put the pronoun and the responsibility on me first and choose to listen to their side, then I can put myself in a position that they feel heard, number one. And when they feel heard, I've got to listen with ears that are completely neutral and non-judgmental. And we talk about this in the book of, of just doing great reflective listening, which I'm sure your audience has been trained in as, as school teachers and principals, that great reflective listening is a skill that I teach, I know, and I forget to use. Uh, so, you know, but, but being a great reflective listener is really key. My pronoun use really matters. Um, I can immediately put people on the defensive or I, I can come in as, hey, I'm your ally. I, I just, we're going to do our best to make this a great situation for both of us, but help me understand. Yeah, that's great feedback, Chris. There's a couple of applications that are just in my mind that I want to share and then feel free to reflect on them with me. One is an application to students and parents. I remember um, as a young teacher once calling a a parent after I was really frustrated with a boy in one of my classes. And this was the, I'm going to call mom to give her the heads up that I'm having these concerns. But the way that I framed that conversation was, let's say the boy's name was Jimmy. You know, <clears throat> Jimmy has been doing X. Jimmy is frustrating me. Jimmy has not responded to correction. Jimmy is blah, blah, blah. I'm just filling the blank. And so I just went through the litany of concerns. This was before I was a parent, by the way. And so her response to me was, was quite listening. And then when I finished my list, she said, I have a question, Mr. Parker. And I said, what is it? And she said, I'm just curious, do you like Jimmy? And I was floored because first of all, teachers hate to have parents like push back on them in, in conversations. But in retrospect, that was such a wise question because I began to fumble with myself, with my words, because I realized that I didn't like Jimmy. Yeah. And so I found myself stumbling all over myself and her still supporting me and, and wanting to give me feedback. But I sat down afterwards with one of my school leaders and I, and I conveyed that conversation to him. And he said, well, well, let me give you some suggestions. First of all, when you call parents, stop framing the conversation of I'm having problems with your child or your child is a problem. Phrase those conversations of, like you just said, Chris, I have concerns because here's my experience that's happening with your child in my class and establishing on the front end, the things that you recognize about that child 
that are valuable in that class too. And it's so interesting how hard conversations will be that shifting point for you, but that changed the way I talked to parents in a couple of ways. One, it changed the way I phrased conversations with them, but two, it was a confrontation for me to reconsider how I valued my kids because I realized that I was looking at kids in my classes that were troublemakers and judging them on that behavior instead of realizing the whole perspective that those kids brought to, to my classroom experience and who they were at home. And so, and of course, Chris, you know, you, you change as a parent too. So as I became a parent later and began to look at those kids in my class from the perspective of how loved they were from those folks that gave them into my care each day, then over time, I became a little more parental too in the way that I taught. But um, so let me just pause there because I'm, I'm, I know you have reflections as you, as you think about that scenario too. Yeah, you know, it, it's so interesting, Will, that, you know, as we learn, you know, tell me what's going on is such a, before we even bring up, I'm having trouble or whatever, give, give me the big picture of how's it going with your fellow teachers or how is it going on your way out to recess? Um, help me understand using those two examples. But, but I think another thing that really challenged me was somebody said similar to, similarly to me is that the people we lead that we don't like, often it's because we don't know them. And they may be a little bit different right out of the gate. And so I pigeonhole them, I stereotype them, I judge them. And I am I'm really good at all those, Will. Um, but if I will take the time to, to get to know the, the science teacher in the seventh grade that is a little bit different than everybody else, then, you know, kind of what we talked about at the first half of our conversation, then it makes these things a little more difficult or easy and less difficult because I, I know the whole picture and I, I can understand what's going on. And, you know, so maybe I'm getting on a, a teacher who's a little bit late every day to school, but who has a, a broken down minivan and her husband just left her and she's got three kids and, you know, all that. And, and just, just trying to understand um, and getting to know people that uh, are on my team. Um, it really comes back to this relational leadership style that we're kind of talking all around and as well a servant leadership style, which, which you talked about that says, what can I do to help you be successful? Um, you know, how do I serve you? So you feel like you knock it out of the park every day. Chris, there's so much there in what you said that, um, I just want to reflect back on too, for, for those that are listening so in principal managed listeners, I'm just going to speak straight to you for just a moment. If the frustration that you have in leadership is people are constantly making mistakes. And I feel like my job is to do nothing but correct others. Welcome to leadership, but also recognize that there is no way around any of those dynamics absent of relationship because, and that's something Chris that um, came home to me also when I, stepped into school leadership because now I'm not just managing kids, but I'm also managing other adults. And guess what? The same dynamics work. If I show that I actually care and have interest in them as people, then they're more often going to respond to me when I have to talk to them directly about something that maybe they need to correct. And so, in, and it also works with community members and it also works with upper administration and it also works with folks that support your schools 
And so, you know, in your book, Bomb Proof Constructive Feedback, Sustaining Healthy Conversations at Work, Chris, you know, you give nitty gritties on how to have those hard conversations, but all of those hard conversations have to be couched within the context of relationship. And if you're listening to this and you're like, that's, um, I would just like to be able to correct people and move on, then you may be in the wrong place. Because if that's the kind of leadership style that you want to have, um, that you're only going to find that in fiction, or, you're, or you might uh, have chosen the wrong profession. Because even I was listening to a book recently by Colin Powell, who everybody listening to this knows who Colin Powell was. And he was talking about some of the favorite memories he had of one of his drill sergeants. And he was saying, you know, in the military, the, the, the role of the drill sergeant is to tear you down and build you up and they're going to treat you so hard. And none of us can behave like that in the settings that we do in organizational leadership or people would just quit. But he said the reason that he remembers loving his drill sergeant so much was because his high expectations were also coupled with a dogged commitment to make sure he was going to succeed. And so he came out of that experience loving that man because he knew this guy had deep, even though he he forced me to do things that I never thought I could do, he also believed I was possible of doing things I never thought I could do. And so that was a lifelong relationship for him after boot camp with somebody that looking back, he realized had that mixture. So, you know, in organizational leadership, we can't be drill sergeants or people would never stay in our, in our, in our companies or businesses, but we can learn some things that hard conversations coupled with deep relationships um, are way more effective than one without the other. And so, um, so, so Chris, let me, let me just wrap up this conversation by encouraging listeners to stay connected with you because this is just the tip of the iceberg in the kinds of conversations that you lead here in Oklahoma and outside of Oklahoma as well. How can people connect with your work if they're interested in finding out more about you or connecting with your content? It, probably the best place is just through chrisservice.com, Will. Uh, there is um, content there. There's more going to be placed uh, this month. We've got some articles coming um, as well. Uh, the book is available there and contact information. And I'd be happy to be helpful as I can to your listeners. Well, Chris, let me give you any time for additional closing thoughts as we wrap up. And then I want to just give a quick shout out to uh, to listeners as well. Yeah, you said one without the other, and we never got to the fact that, you know, confrontations need to take place and they can be done well. And really remembering kind of a story brand thought from Donald Miller that every one of these people that we're confronting is the hero of their story. And it's our job to, they have goals. They want to be administrators one day. They want to be uh, superintendents perhaps one day or whatever it is. But as you so wisely discussed that, that, you know, looking out for their best and recognizing that they want to be successful too, um, and looking to their future and diving into that with them is, uh, is a big deal. Well, Chris Service, thank you so much for taking time to share with Principal Matters listeners your wisdom. And Principal Matters listeners, I just want to encourage you to reach out to Chris Service at his website at chrisservice, Z-E-R-B-A-S, Dot com, and you'll find all kinds of content and information uh, availability that Chris often has to come and speak to organizations and groups to do trainings. Um, Chris, thank you so much for the time you've taken. Principal Matters listeners, thank you for doing what matters, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Will. You can find other free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com.